Hello, and welcome to the Irish Left Archive podcast. I'm Inga Story, and with me is Kieran Swan. In this episode, we'll be talking to Brian Hanley about his experience of left activism as a member of the Socialist Workers' Movement in the late 1980s and early 90s. We discuss the cultural and political influences that led him to join the SWM as a teenager in Limerick, the nature and political position of the organisation at that time, the experience of being an active member and how the SWM changed grew during that period. Brian is a historian in Trinity College, Dublin. We've spoken to him previously in that capacity on the podcast in episode 13, where we discussed the Lost Revolution, the story of the official IRA and the Workers' Party, which Brian co-authored. Um, if you haven't listened to that previously, you'll, you'll find it in the podcast feed. We've included links to a few things mentioned by Brian in the episode notes, and also a few clarifications from Brian, so have a look at those if you want a bit more context. You'll find the Irish Left Archive at leftarchive.ie. If you want to get in touch, you can contact us via the website, or by email at contact at leftarchive.ie, or on Twitter at ieleftarchive. So thanks again to Brian for talking to us, and thank you for listening. Thanks for talking to us, Brian. Perhaps you can start, you can tell us a bit about how you first became politically involved and joined the Socialist Workers Movement. Well, I suppose the, the Redskins are probably to blame for me joining uh, the SWM because um, I was a big fan of theirs in the mid-80s and they were members of the SWP in Britain and an unkind kind of um, critique of their music would be that it was basically Socialist Worker editorials with a good brass section. But it was it was a good brass section. So I became politically aware really in the early eighties. I'm there's um, Eamon Sweeney's book Down Down Deeper and Down about Ireland in the seventies and eighties. That's kind of basically the backdrop to stuff I remember. I was a kid in the seventies and I was a teenager in in the eighties, and I was kind of formed by what a lot of people will talk about in terms of what was going on in the world at the time. Now, I suppose some of my friends really liked the Redskins and they liked other bands I liked as well, and they never got involved in political groups. So it's, again, it's, it's not just about music and culture, but I think that's important. And I think it's probably um, underestimated for a lot of people. Um, I mean, the first kind of way I, I remember thinking about socialism was there was an interview with Paul Weller in, in smash hits actually around the time, that town called Malice came out and I was really getting into the jam as my favourite band and Weller mentioned socialism in this and and I immediately thought I've heard that word and I wonder exactly what it is and it had all the uh, Solidarność and so on was was big in Poland at the time and I was kind of thinking that right is that socialism or is this socialism and I think I asked my mum what's socialism and and so that idea was out there and I was very after the jam broke up Weller formed a style council. I mean, I think Weller's quite a, a bore these days. I'm not into his like, latter period. But, um, and to be fair, he says himself, he was a completely different person in the 80s. But really political. I mean, the style council were a really, really political band. And they do interviews and stuff like Smash Hits, you know, which is a pop magazine. And I remember him, Weller and Smash Hits saying, I don't know what you can do with the Tories except shoot them. You know, and I was like, <laughs> wow, you know. And, and, and that kind of gives you an idea. If, if people go on YouTube, there's a video... Um, Council Collective Soul Deep, which which was a kind of a style council amalgamation during the minor strike. And that was out at Christmas 84. And I remember that on top of the pops. And if you look at what they're saying in the song, I mean, it's, for mainstream television, it's it's quite astounding. Uh, Jimmy Ruffin, some Motown legend, is, is talking about, you know, building up the unions so people can survive and stuff. So it's it was really, I found it a very, you couldn't not be interested given what was going on. Um, the minor strike had a big effect. Again, there's some people who probably find it surprising that Irish people were so um, invested in that. 
I don't think it was surprising at all. I remember when when Thatcher died, there was an interview on the radio and, and I think it was Matt Cooper or somebody was saying to the person he was interviewing, of course, Thatcher was, was particularly disliked in Ireland because of her policies towards Ireland. And I remember thinking, yeah. actually, you know, that isn't the reason why an awful lot of people I knew disliked her. We disliked her because of her policies in Britain. I mean... We uh, didn't have, we only had RT1, then RT2, and there was a, an illegal aerial stuck up in a mountain in Clare and used to be able to get this crackly BBC and UTV sometimes. And uh, March 1985, I remember breakfast television, I think it used to be Selena Scott or somebody, um, and it was, we were get, getting ready to go to school and we're having our breakfast and the television was on and it was dark and on the screen were the miners going back and they were somewhere I think in Yorkshire, marching back behind a banner with a band playing. It was very, you know, stirring. And I remember my mother going, oh, that bitch is after starving them poor men back. And that's the way a lot of people felt, you know. And it definitely was, even though I did nothing about it, um, it was a factor in me thinking about things. And obviously then the same, the music I liked, uh, the stuff I was reading, Started reading Hot Press and in Dublin magazines, who always had a lot of political coverage. I mean, Hot Press would interview Tony Gregory or Tomás McGilla or Jerry Adams or whoever. And it would ask them all kinds of questions, but it would also then interview bands and it would ask the bands political questions, you know. So I remember all the, the different Irish groups being asked, what do you think of the North? What do you think of this? The North was always there. Again, it's a complicated issue. Um, it deserves a, a whole podcast series on its own, but... When people say, oh, the North didn't have much effect on us, I always find that surprising because it was always the backdrop. The first the first things I can remember are the Herama kidnapping, the Miami show band massacre, because those names stuck in my head. And then I remember the arguments um, when we went on holidays to Kerry and arguments at home at night between adults about things that had happened. Mm. And, and my family weren't politically involved and they weren't particularly invested it, it was always there. So the North was always there and the North was always confusing. And it was always that question again of that's the IRA. Is it the IRA? Are they good? Are they bad? Um, so by my teenage years, I was more and more interested in all kinds of different politics and read lots, uh, went to the library and got out lots of books, um, had a lot of access to a lot of American paperbacks, um, Studs Terkel, his book, oral history called working and it's just interviews with people yeah. in the late 60s and early 70s i didn't understand a lot of it didn't understand he interviewed like prostitutes and cops and union organizers and all kinds of people in the states mm. at a really you know a time when america was falling apart so i got very interested in that time in history but it was like quite i couldn't understand a lot of it and it seemed like yeah. quite crazy and, and dangerous and then there was i think another connection to the swp um was Two really. One, we used to read the Sunday World, and M. McCann had a column in the Sunday World every week. I didn't know he was in the SWM, but I used to read his column, and a lot of the time I would agree with it. And it was funny, and it and it was always kind of like he covered Liz Dunvarna and stuff like that. The yeah. famous year there was the terrible tragedy, and then there was all the riot and stuff. So he'd do pop kind of stuff, but then he'd have articles, and he had one during the Dunn store strike, and. Uh, he basically, the article was basically, lots of people like the Dunn store strikers. Everybody thinks, or lots of people think what they're doing is good. Apartheid is terrible, but they're not going to win because they're not going to win until the union calls its members out and completely shuts down Dunn's because this is not, you know, it, it has to be escalated. And now looking back, that would have been very difficult to pull off. 
But I was kind of going, geez, that makes sense. Why don't they just like go on? Why don't they all just go on strike? That'll make Duns do what they want, you know? So I would have been reading his articles and I ultimately found out he was in the SWM, um, but I didn't know it at the start. Hmm. And then I think like a lot of people, there was always people in your class or your school with English accents, people whose parents had had emigrated and then come back. And there was a, hmm. a guy in my class and I was friendly with him. And he grew up in North London and he used to tell us these like, you know, really mad stories about how dangerous it was. And he was in a comprehensive in Tottenham or somewhere and it was all mental. And I remember him telling us about like, uh, again, there was loads of stuff that would have been culturally um, big at the time in terms of music and stuff. But I remember him telling us like that, oh, the big divide in his school was between blacks and whites and all the, all the white kids were in the NF. I was like, what's the NF? And he said, oh, it's the National Front. It stands up mm-hmm. for the whites. And I was like, would you have joined it? And he was like, if I'd stayed there longer, maybe. And, and what people kind of forget is that the late 70s were the NF's electoral heyday. Yeah. But the early 80s were probably their cultural heyday in terms of the way that skinheads and mm. football hooligans and music and stuff like the two-tone tour and all that, that kind of became immersed in the whole thing. So, you know, no political history would would know that or, or might overlook the fact that there was tons of kids who would never vote for them too young to vote for them probably but they identified with with the imagery so I went off to the library and got these books out about the National Front and some again I didn't understand like psychology and the inner city and all this kind of sociological stuff but a couple of them mentioned um, confrontation on the streets the Socialist Workers Party carried out its policy of opposing the front violently and then it had stuff like the Anti-Nats League was established uh, to, to combat the National Front and that sounded very exciting and then I I, I'd, I'd heard of Rock Against Racism. I'd heard bands like The Clash had played it. Then I'd made these connections that, oh, right, Rock Against Racism, the Anti-Nazi League, the SWP, there's some kind of connections to them. Now, by the time I joined the SWP, that was long gone and there was a whole other story um, mm. to anti-fascism. But mm. I didn't know that at the time. It was pretty exciting. I was pretty attracted to it. And I did various other things, but ultimately... In March 1987, after the general election, which had been, again, really put politics in my mind. I was doing my leave insert and uh, I, I kind of like you are when you're a teenager. I was like, it's time to make a stand now. The election's over. Yeah. Fianna Fáil are in. Oh, God, it was hell cuts hurt the old, the sick and the handicapped. They turn, you know, you could tell they were going to, you know, do the dirty on that. And mm. what's the alternatives now? Maybe bizarrely. I went for the alternative that didn't have any members in Limerick, in Limerick. from, uh, <laughs> you know, was tiny compared to loads of others, but yeah. that that was it. And did you, were you ever for even a fleeting moment interested in joining, say, some group which had more members in Limerick than... Well, um, again... Any members is, in Limerick? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would have had a lot of time for militant uh, in yeah. some ways. And militant had a, a very active group in Limerick. And I still have a lot of respect for the people who were in it. Um, and, and some of them are still active. Um, they were good people and they, they tried to do good stuff. Um, there's probably loads of things. Probably romantically, culturally, I was already into the idea of, of the SWM. Um, mm. But... Militant's policy of a socialist federation of Britain and Ireland was a turnoff for me, even if I couldn't articulate it very much. I mean, what I would have said was that we'd spent hundreds of years trying to get away from, you know, a yeah. federation or whatever you want to call it. So what yeah. was the point in going back into one? Um, and 
I would have thought the SWM's line on the national question was closer to what I thought I felt. Um, again, a big, yeah, I mean, I mentioned McCann and the Sunday World. I got Warren an Irish Town out of the library. Mm. And I was reading that in January 1987, and it was the 1979 edition. If people know the book, they'll know that the politics are slightly different in each edition. Yeah. <laughs> um, the 1979 edition ended with the line, something along the lines of, every anti-imperialist must, there is no socialist who's not an anti-imperialist, and every anti-imperialist must support the pros. Um, and I did have mixed feelings about that. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I bought into the view that the people who were, you know, who'd caused debt and destruction across the world couldn't really lecture the IRA about violence. Um, and that the people who called the IRA terrorists were often guilty of worse terrorism themselves. Mm. And you couldn't run away from the national question. Ireland was partitioned. There was a war going on. And um, that would have been, again, another reason why the Workers' Party wouldn't have been that attractive to me but they they, yeah. they had a group in Limerick they did have a, an active group and in fact a guy I went to school with his brother was a, a leading member but um, the WP I'd have been turned off by the Eastern Bloc as well um, yeah. Yeah. and and but they I suppose Militant would have been the closest and you know I mean I think they might have thought for a good while that I might jump ship and join them because I was on my own for a good while when I joined mm. the SWM in Limerick and Militant had a group. I mean, I remember yeah. about 85, there were school strikes, um, secondary school students walked out and it happened in different parts of the country, but um, it happened in Limerick and Militant were involved in that. And one mm. of their members came into our school. He was a past pupil. Um, and I'd have recognized him from selling their paper and stuff. So, and again, I'd saw, I'd seen him at a Blades Gig. I was big into the Blades. This is the yeah. other thing. I mean, the Irish yeah. band I most liked was the Blades and Paul Cleary. And, and Paul Cleary was was very much a socialist. And mm. at one of the Blades gigs, I remember, it must have been about 1984, because he, he said uh, they were going to play Young, Gifted and Black. And he said, this is for the Dunstore Strikers. And some people cheered. And there was some other people there who didn't cheer. And, and they were like, I, I was a modder. I thought I was. I was never very cool uh, and couldn't keep up really with the the shifts in fashion and but some of the mods went back and forth to England a lot from Limerick and some of them brought back pretty bad ideas you know and uh, so again I was interested in the whole thing about you know um, I mean I think they went to Carnaby Street and places like that where actually they would have been Mm. a big fascist presence in, in the 80s so you could you could get into political arguments pretty easy with people even if yeah. You know, even if a lot of it was pretty garbled. The other person in Limerick who would have been a big personality, and this would have been another influence on me, mm. was Kemi. Um, right. I remember being at Mass in, I know it has to be 1982, because that's when the election was, when the priest said there was a candidate standing for election who believes in the murder of the unborn. And that was said at every Mass in Limerick in 1982. And it was a big, big campaign. The Limerick leader had this editorial that was, title was the stench of death mm. and they were saying there's a candidate who supports murder and the Labour Party in Limerick absolutely ran with that they mm. they used this to, to get Kemi out so I'd have had a bit of time for him because of who was against him I wouldn't have had a clue what his position on the North was um, yeah. no idea um, yeah. my dealings with him which were very limited later on were quite pleasant um, he he wasn't patronising towards an 18 year old who was trying to book rooms for 
SWM meetings and stuff. He'd like ask you what what do you think's happening in Russia and stuff like that. So yeah, you know. But people in Limerick had a lot of time for him. Now I don't not saying Republicans and so on did, um, or the right wing in the Labour Party. Mm. But years later, when I found out Kemi was so heavily influenced by the British and Irish Communist Organisation, I couldn't believe it because the style was absolutely different. I mean, the BNICO mm. or vitriolic, polemical, you know, sectarian, you know, kind of vicious rhetoric. Mm. And Kemi was very, very limerick. I mean, it was a, a very working class, um, very um, kind of affable generally, I think, you know. Mm. Um, again, I didn't really know him, but my mother would ha- have had a bit of time for him because he'd set up the family planning clinic. And again, he was elected on a working class vote. I mean, the liberals in Limerick did like Kemi, but there wasn't that many fucking liberals in Limerick in the 80s, <laughs> I can assure you. Not enough to get someone elected anyway, um, or to get him elected. So... He kind of occupied a lot of the ground that the Workers' Party might have in, in yeah. a different town. And also yeah. he occupied Labour's ground and ultimately yeah. ended up joining them. But I didn't know anything about the two nations or any of that stuff. Did you regard yourself as a Trotskyist when you went into the SWM? No. And, and the SWM didn't really regard themselves as Trotskyists either. Uh, that right. might come as a surprise to people. Um, they weren't an orthodox Trotskyist group. Now, I did read a, a little graphic novel kind of thing or a graphic book called socialism for beginners mm. and that was all about this idea of socialism from below and the what is it marx the the emancipation of the working class is the act of the working class or whatever this yeah. is something that we quoted all the time and basically that socialism had to come from below you weren't going to be transformed into a social society by a labor government or by the red army arriving in your garden or by a guerrilla group rising up it had to be done by the working class themselves and it had to be democratic and and I was always a bit dubious about the Bolshevik Revolution. Maybe it's a deep down prejudice, but but I kind of bought into the idea that that had been a mass democratic revolution and basically was betrayed ultimately because I don't see how by the 1980s I could have I could have looked at the world and said it's it's working fine. Um, I mean, this is the era of Chernobyl. Yeah, this is the era of, you know, yeah. I mean, the, the, the Soviet Union did not look like the center of of the progressive world um, or the future it didn't look like the or the future. future either you know but i mean i i i believe you can walk and chew gum at the same time mm. so it didn't you know i i could support workers on strike in poland and workers on strike in britain mm. i could i could see the hypocrisy of reagan and thatcher claiming to be in support of solidarity yeah. while while hammering their own working class um and and that's the way again that was an attraction because i i said well are there groups who think like that so I thought like that, but I wouldn't have called it Trotskyism. And, and the thing about the SWM was, um, the SWM, when I was in it anyway, spent a lot more time talking about Lenin than they did about Trotsky. They agreed with Trotsky about criticising Stalin, and they agreed about you know the idea of international revolution as opposed to socialism in one country. But there was no deification of Trotsky. I mean, it wasn't rammed down your throat. And they kind of had a, a contempt um, or certainly would have sneered at the kind of Trotskyist groups that believed they were the centre of the international and all that kind of thing. Mm. The SWM would have claimed, we don't have an international. This is ridiculous. We're not the leadership of anything. Um, Trotsky, Lenin, Marx, Engels, Luxembourg, all these, Gramsci, all these people have very valuable things to say. I mean, on, on their best day, that's what they would have said. But mm. you, you kind of got labelled a Trotskyist. And if you were called a Trotskyist, by inverted commas a Stalinist you'd say yeah I am a Trotskyist but I wouldn't have taught in those terms but I did think in terms of like can you be against like when Reagan came in 84 
I was against his visit and I mm. kind of followed the protests against it. That was quite an important moment for the SWM too. But at the same time, I'd have said, yeah, because I could remember on television, fellas, you know, people going, yeah, these are the same people who worship the Soviet Union. And I think it was McCann or somebody saying, no, we don't. Yeah. No, we support people who are oppressed wherever. And that to me f- sounded like a reasonable, and, and it's exactly, it's, it's what I believe now, even mm. though I don't do anything about it. Um, <laughs> I believe in workers having the right to strike, the right to organise. Um, I believe in people having basic democratic freedoms that the working class in Britain and Ireland and other countries have, have fought for for generations. Mm. And I don't believe they should be just for us. Um, mm. If they are, if people in North Korea or China don't have them, I don't support those places. And, and you can, you know, you can fantasize about how many nuclear weapons they have all you like. That's not what socialism is about for me. Um, so that's crudely what, mm. what I think. So that's kind of what I thought in 1987 too. Yeah, yeah. And so how did you join them? I mean, you're the only person in Imerick who's inclined to join the SWM. I'd actually written away to loads of groups and I'd written to the Communist Party as well and the Workers' Party. And, and mm. I didn't write to Sinn Féin because I used to buy... Uh, on Fublock Republican News mm. outside the Augustinian Church on a Saturday. And, and on Fublock, there's loads of international stuff. So, yeah. you know, if you wanted your, your Sandinistas and your ANC and PLO and all that, you could get APRN. Um, yeah. And uh, so I was on not in terms with some of the Shinners, um, but I would have bought militants. So I don't think I wrote to them at that point either. I wrote mm. to the ones who I didn't know. And the SWM's address was in in Dublin magazine because there'd been something about a Marxism event in Dublin. So I wrote to it and got a load of stuff back, pamphlet, why we need a revolution in Ireland. Um, And that had a little list of addresses on the inside of of like-minded groups. So I thought this was like, oh, wow, they're they're all over the world. I said, oh, it's the same as the British SWP. Oh, right, you know. Mm. And I remember the Redskins had been interviewed in in, in Dublin magazine and they hadn't even said Socialist Workers Party. The interviewer had just said, you're in the SWP. And I was kind of mm. the SWP. So all these things kind of in my head were, you know, again, not the most sophisticated. A lot of it was kind of gut feeling. But I wrote away. And then myself and a friend of mine, I mean, several of my friends would put up with me going on about this stuff. Um, they weren't that pushed, but you, they'd end up helping you put up posters and stuff just because. But again, we... I suppose this continued in the SWM, and I don't know if anybody else has mentioned the importance of alcohol on the Irish left. Um, There's a lot of drinking involved. I mean, all our meetings were in pubs and all our public meetings were in hotels that serve drink. And I do remember, like, like, certainly in Limerick, to get my friends to help with something, we'd have a couple of pints and then we'd go out and put up posters or something. But um, I came up to (laughs) Dublin to meet the SWM and uh, met Kieran Allen and uh, another guy, so I met the two of them and look, I was going to join mm. if, if they'd announced, you know, that, that almost anything was possible. I, I was just interested in joining. Yeah. My friend actually joined and on the way back down to Limerick on the train, he, uh, I think we got under 16 fares or something because we both looked pretty young. Um, <laughs> he just said to me, this is a lot of crap, Hanley. And I said, that's grand, but I'm going to stay in it. Yeah. Um, but they thought they were getting two members. They only got one. So I went up, met them, and then I was still at school and they started sending me down Socialist Worker, which was a monthly paper mm. um, and full of typos and, and you know, put together with yeah. <laughs> the little blades and the print stick and all the rest of it and bits yeah. it up on people's shoes and um, pictures put in wrong and all the rest. But um, that issue had stuff about Bloody Sunday. I think it was 15th anniversary of Bloody Sunday in article by Ian McCann. 
mm. few other articles. And the next one they sent me, I said, I'll sell it. I kind of had the idea that the, that this was so sensible, the idea of, you know, socialism from below and so on, that once people heard about it, you know, they'd, they'd be into it. Um, yeah. So I said, send me down 20, you know, and I'll sell them at school, you know. And I, I do, I went around, like I didn't stand in the middle of school, but I went around to people asking them. And a couple of people did buy it, you know. Yeah. And I only realised this, I was at a conference last year in Oxford about activism and a guy from UCD was doing a paper on gay health action and, and the AIDS crisis. And I just realised when he put up the slide that gay health action had brought out a very explicit leaflet about how to avoid AIDS, you know, and, right. and various things. And Socialist Worker had done a centre spread on AIDS and, yeah. and reprinted this kind of as solidarity. And this was the one I was selling. Now, ah. um, 1987... I mean, my school was mixed. There was boys and girls in it, but actually some of the couple of girls in my class were extremely right wing and had been very vocal about divorce and, and things like that, being anti. So yeah. this whole thing about AIDS and this gay health action, very quickly people were giving me their opinions. on it. But a lot of people were just bemused and a few people thought it was funny. But, it, you know, I quickly realised that it would take more than just me saying this is a good idea for people. Yeah. To, yeah. So I never, I never built a branch in Limerick at that stage. Once I joined, and, and obviously I was on my own for a while, so I wasn't mm. going to meetings or anything. But once I did start to do that, what they reinforced, and, and what they did was that they, they paid for my fare to go to the Marxism in London in 87, right. which was a huge eye-opener, and which obviously then, you know, I mean, the, the point was they knew that if I went to that, I'd probably get a big morale boost and, and yeah. see things in a much different way, and it would look much bigger. But what they stressed was that there's no revolution. There's no, this isn't, you know, you're not joining this because next week we're going to be on the barricades. That's not going to happen. This is a mm. period of defeat. It's what they call the downturn. Mm. And I never heard the word, you know, people talk about neoliberalism. I cannot remember anybody talking about neoliberalism. It was Reaganism or Thatcherism That's a, yeah. or monetarism, you know. But basically, the defeat of the miners was a huge deal. Yeah. When I joined the SWM, there'd been a strike at Packard and Tala where the workers had ultimately caved in and accepted a very bad deal. And that was, again, a sign of what was coming down. Uh, a friend of mine had a good friend who was a shop steward in Packard, and he used to take in socialist worker and stuff as well. So mm. we, we had a bit of knowledge about the factory. And basically, militant, in contrast, were, were very optimistic and, in fact, quite apocalyptic at times. Like, they mm. would always say, there should be a general strike against this. You know, when the hospital is closed in Limerick, work, union should call a general strike. The SWM would say, absolutely no point in saying that. There isn't going to be a general strike. Right. workers are just not strong enough so there was always this kind of thing some people would always blame trade union leaders or sellouts and mm. the SWM would say that too but they'd also say but there's a real basis for it because workers aren't you know Active, combative aren't and it can only come yeah. from the rank and file and there isn't a real rank and file network so what they would have said was that you're not going to be in a mass party mm. you're going to get like me writing in out of the blue we're going to recruit one or two people every now and then who are interested in socialism as an idea. Occasionally, we might recruit somebody who's already in something or we might meet them in a campaign or during a strike. But generally, it'll be the ones and twos. And we'll do that by selling the paper and having regular meetings. And don't you would not. Nobody thought there was going to be a revolution. Um, these were bad times. The working class was on the defensive. Um, so. It, it, it quickly became apparent that it wasn't romantic, to say the least. 
What was the game plan then to proselytise for socialism? That's the well, it, I suppose, again, we're, we have the misfortune or the fortune, depending on what way you look at it, to be next door to Britain. So mm. we were right next door to a much bigger operation in the SWP. Yeah. And, I mean, there's, there's a little potted history that I kind of agree with in a pamphlet called We Are Red Action, um, which was mm. brought out in 82. I read it in 1992, but that's not a bad little pot of history of where the, the, the SWP had come from. Mm. But in the 80s, the SWP had decided, basically, this is a period of defeat, and mm. you've got to basically batten down the hatches and try and recruit on general socialist theory. Um, and that was a period when militants were, seemed to be growing by leaps and bounds, were... were in the leadership of the Liverpool City Council mm. um, struggle and so on. And the SWP were kind of in their shadow. Whereas in the late 70s, Militant had been pretty, you know, in the shadow of the SWP during the anti-Nazi League period. So Militant in some ways were quite different, but the SWP had a, had a theory. Now, I realised this was a choice now. And I think it was probably the wrong choice because I don't think any organisation that isn't rooted in, in working class communities... Um, mm can be successful but what the SWP essentially said and what the SWM said was that you know we're too small to really be in the leadership of anything we don't have enough influence in unions or in anything else so we've got to recruit ones and twos that's hard but one place where we can do it is universities and colleges because students have lots of time they're supposed to be interested in ideas anyway you can go in and have meetings in these places you can't do that in Packard you can't walk into Packard and ask the management can you address the workers you know but you can go into Trinity and set up a stall and, and have meetings and basically colleges are a place where we can get recruits and and we'll get you know we'll take anyone which was definitely the case but you know students are the way forward it wasn't the, are the way forward but this is the the idea now that wasn't happening when I joined. It hadn't been successful. I didn't mm. join a student organisation. I would say the majority of SWM members were unemployed or in part-time or precarious work when I joined. But it did start to become the case over the next few years because they, they employed a full-timer for the first time and he spent a lot of time working in colleges mm. and it started to slowly pay off. Now, they would have taken that from the SWP, which was very much dominated if not by students, by ex-students. When I joined, there was approximately, they stayed 60 to 70 members in Ireland. So it's small. Um, The biggest branch was in Dublin and there was maybe 30 to 40 people there. They were mixed and it was more white collar than blue collar and people came from a variety of backgrounds. But Mm. the argument was, we want to be a working class party, but that just doesn't happen. Um, So we need to build up a critical mass. And one way you can do that is by recruiting students because that gives you a kind of a a bigger number of people, you know, to, to intervene. Now, of course, the other way you can do it is actually just by concentrating on working class areas, which other parties did or tried to do. Mm. Um, and, and I can see that was a choice. But if you went around the country, Waterford, there was just two or three members at that stage. Mm. Very distinct history. Um, Waterford was very important to the SWM. It was one of the, the Waterford socialist movement in the early 70s had been one of the component parts. Yeah. The, the SWM talked very little about its history. There were people in the SWM who'd been there since the 70s, but you'd have to ask them. There was never a meeting I can remember where there was, this is the history of our group. They just didn't talk about it. So you kind of vaguely knew in the 70s it was different, and it was, and its paper was called The Worker, and it was very much based around rank and file trade yeah. unionism. So in Waterford in the early 70s, a lot of young shop stewards in Waterford Glass had been in the SWM, 
and they'd all left during the 70s. But they'd stayed friendly and that became important because several of them rejoined um, in 1990 after a strike there. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I can tell you about Waterford. I mean, um, the most successful paper sale I was ever on in 1992, I was down there as a full-timer and was selling with a local person at Waterford Glass. And we sold like 200 papers in space right. of half an hour. Because, and he said to me, we went, I said, why are we bringing all these? Like, we just won't sell them. And he said, this is... And he said, no, this is this is a regular sale. People were just coming up. Now, they knew him because he was from Bally Bay, mm. which is where the factory is. And he'd been involved in, he'd been a docker and stuff and involved in stuff. But there was a couple of members there. One was a shop steward in, in a factory. She mm. later became quite a big personality in SIP2. One was long-term unemployed, casual employment on the docks. Um, another woman was there, was a factory worker. It was a tiny number, but all working class. And Waterford is like that. You know, Cork, they were trying to put the student stuff into practice, but um, there was only three or four people um, and I think then a, a guy from an anarchist background joined which was quite unusual and a few more people joined and they started to kind of make inroads in, inroads in UCC but mm. one of them used to sell the Evening Echo on the street it was his job and another guy had worked on oil refineries he, he's passed away now a guy called Jim Blake and he was a hospital porter then and, and actually then he immigrated to Zimbabwe and right. was involved in, in setting up the, the socialist worker group in Zimbabwe of, of all places but um, Limerick Nutton Galway a couple of students try- in the 70s there'd been a branch in Galway which had got embroiled in the official IRSP split mm-hmm. um, and then they completely disappeared so now it was more trying to get stuff going at the college there I mean I remember selling at the Dole in Galway at one point and um, your man Steve Wall of the Stunning bought a paper and uh, I said, is that your man from the stunning? And the person with me said, yeah, 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 he usually buys one, yeah. Um, so, you know, this was the kind of, there was one member in Dundalk, it was a shop steward in the Carroll's factory, would have been well known, had, had lead strikes during the H-block period, which was very important for the, the SWM I joined, um, the whole H-block period and, and republicanism. Small branch in Derry, M. McCann had moved back to Derry. He'd only joined the SWM 83 or 84, People kind of thought he was there all the time, but he wasn't. Um, he independent thinker anyway, and, and, and uh, wasn't on the leadership. Again, people thought that McCann is the, the main person. He wasn't. Um, mm. In many ways, was uh, distrusted by the leadership, um, yeah. but but very loyal at the same time. Um, I don't think she'd mind me saying Gareddy Horgan was the main person in Derry, um, and small branch Derry's hard to get to. It's got its own culture as well. Mm. Um, Belfast then had a long-term member since the 70s who was a, a woman who would have been known again in the H-block campaigns, in the strip searching campaigns, things like that, had been very orientated around republicanism in West Belfast. But mm. they were trying to get out of that and they were trying to build at Queen's. But their members were basically working class nationalists from West Belfast. A couple of them, it was a couple of brothers. It's, it's not the two lads who are councillors now, it's two different people. I can't remember if they were at Queen's, but they were from working class backgrounds. Then they recruited a few more people at Queen's, um, yeah. including a woman from Protestant background. So there was a small branch in Belfast who were mainly active in the West and were kind of pushing into the city centre and also then in the university. Now, mm. uh, people can be blasé about these things. Um, I would never have been to the North except I joined the SWM and I yeah. went first in maybe February 88 to a conference in Coal Island and saw people like Bernadette McAlisky and Jerry Adams and so on speaking. I'm not saying that that uh, they deserve medals or anything, but 
there was a war going on and it wasn't easy to do what they were doing even. Mm. So, I mean, there's a lot of bitterness and, and slagging that goes on and that's fair enough. In 1991, there was a campaign around the Brooks Centre um, which was a family planning type centre and I was up there a lot and I was staying with this couple in North Belfast. They had about 20 chains and, and locks in their door. They lived near Tigers Bay. Um, there was sectarian assassinations happening all the time. Anytime you got a taxi, the, the taxi man would be saying, one of our lads was shot last week or we had a narrow escape. And mm. they were operating in that atmosphere and, you know, doing stuff on the streets, which identified them as socialists. Mm. You know, I mean, in 86, a member of militant was shot dead by the UVF. Uh, and that's yeah. kind of forgotten. The SWM I joined was still very much influenced by the role that it had played in the H-Blocks campaign. And basically, it still saw republicanism as probably going to be the place where revolutionary activity would come from. It was slowly moving away from that. But the paper would have still used terms like Brits and free state and stuff like that. And, and then it slowly dropped all that. But they were framed by that. And, and it was really the 70s SWM had gone into the Socialist Labour Party. A lot of the original members had left at some point, And Kieran Allen had become the central theoretical figure, leadership figure in the early 80s. And the one I joined was basically that group. There were people in it who'd been in it longer, but you'd have to ask them to find out, you know? Um, mm. It didn't talk about its own history. And it didn't talk too much about bloody Irish history either, which is something that I realised later on, you know? Um, yeah. You do the basic stuff about the North and things like that, but the 1918 strike against conscription, or I remember there being maybe one meeting on the War of Independence and all the time I was in it. Yeah. You know, none on the Civil War. Now, Later on, Conor Costick wrote a book, but that wasn't an SWP publication. He wrote it himself. Um, mm. we, we, did, we weren't good on that. We mm. were good on all the, the vast amounts of stuff that the SWP would produce and we would then use yes. for ourselves, yeah. reuse, or, or, you know, a certain Irish stuff that Kieran Allen would, would come up with. That sounds a bit blasé, but, but he was the main. There was nobody else, absolutely, who, who was in any way trying to come up with original stuff. Um, yeah. I mean, I certainly wasn't. Um, mm. And there's a theory that the various revolutionary groups are very much moulded by their leading personality. And mm. certainly the British SWP was very much in the mould of Tony Cliff and, and mm. the SWM was quite moulded by, by Kieran Allen. Um, but in your own mind, I didn't like the student thing. I'm not just mm. saying that. Um, I thought, OK, this is supposed to be a workers movement. But people would say to you and workers would say to you, you know, a guy who was a shop steward in Dublin Corporation would say to me, he said, look, like the lads I work with, you know, a couple of them buy papers, but they're not going to really join us. But these kids from Trinity will join us. So yeah. why not get them yeah. out selling papers? You know, we had a couple of members in Trinity. Uh, again, students in the late 80s, depending on the college, tended mm. to be obviously middle class, but. One of the guys in Trinity had been in the Labour Party from Clondalk and later on, one of the main people in UCD was from Cabra. Um, so again, it's a mixed bag. But, you know, the, the stereotype of the British SWP had a lot of truth in it. But I would have also said that there were big caveats there, too. And, and there were caveats that that definitely influenced me. So when I went in 87, 88 or whatever to Marxism in London, which was a huge event, it was a big morale booster for the... I mean, if you were in the SWM and, and you're selling five papers at the GPO or something, or you're down in Dungarvan or Kilkenny, yeah. as one member in these places, and you go to London to a thing where there's three or 4,000 people, there's meetings on every conceivable subject, there's people like Tony Benn speaking, mm. people from the Birmingham Six speaking, I remember Paddy Joe Hill speaking after his release, um, mm. you know, uh, 
Scargill, well, Scargill actually spoke for the SWM in Dublin in 92. I can't remember if he spoke in London, but certainly people from the NUM, um, John Pillager speaking about the hidden history of Australia. And there's like thousands of people at it. Um, and, you know, it, it was a big morale booster. Now, again, the more cynical I got, the more time I spent in the bar there. But it was cheap as well. I, you'd live on sausage, beans and chips for the week because it was university prices and cheap to drink as well. And what I found was that the people who I got to know and some of them I got very friendly with. And again, unfortunately, over the years, we lost contact, my fault, basically. But they didn't fit this idea of the East. I mean, there, there were thousands of students and the SWP would would basically I think the apparatus was kept alive by the fact you could re- recruit a thousand students in September. And you'd lose half of them, but some would stay yeah. and some would stay longer and some would stay forever. So you could keep an organization of allegedly 4,000 members going by the constant merry-go-round in universities. Now, that had an effect, I think, on the party. But on the other hand, um, when I went there in 87, I met miners from Yorkshire who joined during the strike. Mm. In 88, there were health service strikes. And it shows you, in fact, how, how long it took the Thatcher thing to bed in because the NHS workers went on strike, nurses went on strike, and they picketed out building sites and stuff who came out in their support. And this is completely illegal, but the Frickley Colliery, the Armstrong Colliery and stuff, where the SPP had a couple of members, they brought out those mines in support of the nurses, you know, in 87, 88. So you had dockers, you had friends of mine, a guy who was a painter. He had been to college. And again, again in England, the student population was a bit broader, maybe. So there were obviously lots of, of poshos, but there were people who weren't posh as well. Manual workers would have been in a minority. Blue collar workers would have been in a minority, but they were postal workers. There were ancillary staff in hospitals, but there were lots of teachers, lots of Nalgo local government workers, because I think, you know, when you finish college, that's where you went. So it was white collar. There certainly were some people from very well off backgrounds. And again, you'd kind of hear you know, such and such. But I found it very strange in that ultimately I gravitated towards more cynical people, I suppose. But it was like that caricature of an army where all they do is slag off the officers, but at the same time, they still do everything the officers tell them. I mean, they'd have no time for the full-timers. The apparatus were derided behind their backs as useless. You know, party hack was the, (laughs) oh my God, he's such a hack. He has an original thought in his head, you know, flipping. Cliff tells them what to do and they all go off and do it. But at the same time, people would never leave or they usually wouldn't leave. They'd still do all these things, you know, because the alternative, you know, why don't you join militant? Oh, fucking hate them, you know, or whoever. So it was unusual that way. And I think all organisations, I think, seem to have this where the rank and file are kind of always disgruntled. Mm. You're in a minority because definitely most of your neighbours and friends aren't in this. You are. So then there's a camaraderie of being in that group and you don't really want to upset the apple cart. So I always think dissidents and critics have a hard time because I think the tendency is always to say, well, they're our leadership. You know, they're getting slagged off by other people, so we shouldn't slag them off. The international socialists, as they've been in Britain, had been a small, basically student group in the late 60s. Mm. They'd gone into the early 70s, unlike a lot of the other student who left groups with a working class perspective. They'd benefited hugely from 72 to 74 when the dockers and then the miners had had been out. Mm. They'd completely transformed and become a a party that, you know, had factory branches in the car factories in the English Midlands um, Mm. who had, you know, rank and file papers and stuff. And basically that had been lost. Now they didn't talk why it had been lost. And there was a big blank as to why all these workers had left, you know, but they said that'll happen again when the struggle arises. And, And they'd have, you know, you'd have heard so many times about Tony Cliff addressing miners in Yorkshire or addressing engineers mm. and so on. And, and that did happen. 
in the early 70s. I think he wrote a little booklet, Shop Stewards and, and something else that sold 50, 60,000 copies. So yeah. then they'd gone into the whole anti-Nazi league thing where they'd recruited lots of young working class kids who wanted to fight DNF. So yeah. they had a history of being able to do things. And yeah. that kind of convinced you when she became cynical, which I wasn't. Like The thing was, I wasn't cynical in 1987. You know, right. I was a naive kid who would have believed anything they told me. Um, you know, so I didn't become cynical until later on. And again, I was a full timer in Ireland. Mm. So I was a party hack. Mm. And fuck me, at times I did come out with some shite. I mean, there's no <laughs> doubt that I swallowed a lot of party stuff that really was, you know, just wasn't sensible. But but at the same time, when I went to London, all my friends were quite cynical and they'd always have to gossip about, you know, did you hear what happened last week down in, down uh, the East End? Oh my God, it's terrible. We got to do something about it. So, yeah. you know... I, I was uh, kind of between two worlds almost. Yes, yeah, yeah, and and a lot of people were like that. We, the yeah. proximity thing meant, of course, that someone would join the SWM in Dublin and they couldn't get a job, so they'd emigrate, yeah. and they might then join the SWP or they might not. So some people then would be active over there, and, and then on the other hand, um, you know, you'd meet a lot of people from Britain because um, I should probably say England, Scotland, and Wales, but mm. basically, um, you'd be selling papers at the GPO. And people would come and say, oh, we're from, we're in the SWP in St. Albans. We've just been up to Kilmain in jail. And what else can we do? And you'd end up like going to the pub with them or whatever. So you're always yeah. meeting people from, there was a lot of cross-pollinization yeah. or whatever the hell you, you want to you wanna call it. When you went back, like, because did you go every year after that to uh, Marxism? I went almost every year. I couldn't go in 89 because I was on a FOS course and I was going to get thrown off it if I'd missed I'd missed loads of days anyway. Um, so I think I went for a couple of days um, the weekend, but I didn't go for the whole week. And then I, did, I didn't I did go in. I moved back to Limerick in 89, 90 for family reasons. Yeah. And then I in 91, I went to 92. And 92 was the last time. By which so time, you moved up to Dublin, did you? Or you moved to Dublin, did you? I did, yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, so 92 was the last time in London, by which case, even though I actually spoke at the bloody thing, I was quite disillusioned by a lot of it right but still didn't leave for another couple of years i kind of zoned out but i didn't um Hmm. didn't leave um so you'd have been part of parcel then of the dublin side of the swm for at least two years yeah and i think the big thing there is that very crudely we tread water for a couple of years and kept things together Hmm. and the basic routine was weekly branch meeting in the bachelor inn um special branch usually outside why the fuck the taxpayer paid for that. I don't know. But again, one of the things which people, it wouldn't happen in Britain. The special branch wouldn't have been outside an SWP meeting in, in Hackney or somewhere. Um, you'd you'd get stopped by the special branch doing SWM stuff, which was quite, when you think about it, what we, it's again, partly the North um, and any association with Republicanism, but weekly branch meeting could be an anything mm. 30 minutes long. Then, uh, if you could talk at all, you were pushed to speak at branch meetings. So it could be, you know, what went wrong in Russia? You know, what now for the, the IRA or something? You know, obviously they weren't there, but, you know, we we're yeah. going to talk about what they were going to do next. Um, whatever. Um, lots of general socialist stuff. Sometimes good, sometimes mediocre. Mm. You would attract people who would be interested in a particular issue would come along. There's lots of people I still know who went to SW meetings at various stages. Then there'd be branch business. So organizing paper sales at the weekend at the GPO pub sales on a Friday night. Mm. We used to do them north side, south side, the whole lot. I hated that. Hated going into pubs, um, mm. selling papers. Um, but you'd still sell quite a few. Mm. I mean, every pub would contain one person who'd say, I'm a capitalist, you know. Um, but 
yeah. aside from that, you very rarely got abuse. And then you get maybe somebody very drunk who thought it was on full block to take their money anyway. Um, then you'd be, we did do industrial sales and they became much more formalized later on. Mm. They'd be reports then from strikes. Um, you know, people say, any member in a union branch, can they take up a collection for this strike? Can motions be put forward? There were three SWM members on the Trades Council. One was in the Irish Transport Union. One was in the Workers Union of Ireland. Mm. One was in the Civil and Public Services. Um, union stuff was important if you were in a union and you should, you were supposed to try and become a shop steward, but we didn't take full-time positions. Um, yeah. The You'd have a little report then maybe on some local activity. Um, pe- subs would be collected. People would go around collecting papers there'd be a book stall and that would build up then to a monthly public meeting which was sometimes a speaker from britain or somewhere else or one of our own doing a tour around the branches and that's when new people might be attracted and might come in and that was a kind of routine and if there was demonstrations you'd go to them and try to sell papers if there was public meetings by Sinn Féin Mm. I mean I remember going to meetings where Jerry Adams and Co were speaking. I mean, God help us, like when I think of it, you know, you were just kind of so out of that league. I mean, there's no... And again, people would generally be friendly. Um, mm. they, the ordinary Republicans, um, and I found this in Limerick too, you were no threat to them. And even if you criticised the Republican movement, you know, you're an outsider. So, yeah. and uh, that didn't really matter. Uh, the left in Sinn Féin were different. They'd be quite hostile to you because uh, some of them had been in people's democracy a couple of them had been in the swm mm. it was like we were like the ghost of christmas past maybe so <laughs> they were much more hostile than than the average shinner, you know who didn't really wasn't you know who could be quite friendly <laughs> again there were people in the swm who came from republican families there were people in the swm whose families yeah. who had workers party members in their families as well um there wouldn't have been many but there'd have been a few and in the north again a member in belfast i think her dad was longtime wp and and there were others who were involved in Sinn Féin and stuff so um, I suppose the thing was recruitment was very slow and Trinity and UCD and Queens and so on started to bring in a few people but it was slow Mm. it wasn't dramatic and the the cynicism and the kind of opportunism that is a bit inherent in a lot of this party building wasn't as apparent at the time because there was nothing to to base it on because you weren't yeah. doing, you know, there were a couple of women in the branch who'd have been active in the defend the clinics and it would have kept in touch with that. But we tended to be quite cynical about campaigns. Now I realize now that the only way campaigns are kept alive is by people being just dedicated to them and doing very little else. Mm. Mm. But we were totally against that. It was like, no, 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 you don't spend all your life campaigning against apartheid yeah. or whatever you build a party and you, the party, you know, the key thing is, is to get bigger and we're in and out of these kind of campaigns. Um, mm. That became much more apparent later on and, and maybe far more blatantly cynical. But it wasn't that apparent at the time. And very crudely, not a lot was happening. So mm. we were, I mean, I remember a basic thing. There was a strike at a place called Irish Printed Circuits in mm. Walkinstown. And, you know, someone said to me, there was a a bakery on Westmoreland Street where there'd been a strike a couple of years before and the shop steward had joined the SWM very briefly. Could I go in and ask her, would she take up a collection for this? So I did. And she said, yeah, I'll come back next week. And she, you know, collected money from her workmates and I brought it out yeah. to the strike in, in Walkinstown. And that'd be a basic kind of thing. I never, again, I mean, I hated going up to picket lights, you know. Yeah. I remember the yeah. fire brigade being on strike. I remember other ones. I hated going up and saying, oh yeah, I'm a socialist worker. But no one ever told you to piss off. Hey. No one was ever hostile. 
people would always go either, oh, maybe you should talk to the shop steward or, all right, yeah, 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 is this your paper? Okay. Now, if you had something about them in the paper, even better. But generally people weren't, they weren't going to turn around and join you. Yeah. Um, and they might have thought some of your stuff about the union leaders and all that, so maybe a bit over the top. But people were, people were fine. Um, there was a kind of still a strong tradition of not crossing picket lines and, mm. and things like that. So, um, you know, and even though it was grim kind of industrially, uh, there were still a good few strikes going on. So, yeah. but I'm, my basic memory of it, I went back to Limerick in 89, Eastern Europe went bang. Mm. Poll tax happened in England. I was quite, you know, I was down for family reasons anyway, but also then I was back in Limerick and I got a job and I was kind of, then I got back into the swing of, of going out on a Saturday and, and drinking all day. So that was quite good. And I was kind of like, I don't know if I'll stick with this really because I don't see. Yeah. And then in the summer of 1990, there was um, a big strike at Waterford Glass, which the SWM intervened in and, and several shop stewards joined the party. They'd been members as teenagers and they joined again. And that was a big deal because it was a very well organized factory and they like they would have taken in party material and all this. The Waterford Glass would have struck during the H blocks. Mm. They'd have struck during the taxation marches. You know, they were a militant factory. There was a big tradition. And as I said to you, you could sell 200 papers there in the morning. Um, So that was a big deal. And when I heard about that, I was like, geez, that sounds good, you know. So Mm. I started doing a few things in Limerick and getting to know some of the Limerick left um, at the time. And then uh, the Saddam went into Kuwait. And that for me is, that's year zero for the rebirth, if you know, with the modern SWM, that's where they, they decided to launch a campaign. Now, they'd launched a campaign against Reagan back in 84, but generally they wouldn't have done things like that because they wouldn't have thought they were big enough and mm-hmm. it was too much. But they, they, all the different groups around the world started anti-war campaigns and they started up a no to war in the Gulf Committee or no to war in the Gulf campaign. And I started doing stuff in Limerick around that as well. Mm. And it was nothing on the scale of 2003, actually. I mean, it's nothing like that, mm. but it was still big. So you started to, all the college groups started to get people coming to meetings. All the branches started to get people coming to meetings. Yeah. Um, in Limerick, in January 91, just before the war was supposed to start, because um, there was a deadline um, I think the 15th of January or something. Yeah. We had a, a public meeting, which I basically organized on my own, but one of the one of my mates came out and and again we had a few pints before we posted that we covered Limerick. And I remember a guy from Sinn Fein saying to me, geez, you must have had a big team down to do that. You don't you got everywhere done now. So it was just just two of us. But uh there was a meeting about 50, 60 people at it. Uh speaker from the SWM, speaker from Palestinian Solidarity Group at the time, a Palestinian mm. guy actually. Um, maybe somebody else and again it wasn't cutthroat in Limerick because I was on my own so I wasn't challenging any, I wasn't on anybody's turf mm. so Sinn Féin came along the Workers Party came along People's Democracy had a group in Limerick um, again very friendly guy called Pat O'Connor who's since, since died um, so I got to know him a little bit um, was there and a good few people but also then people we didn't know mm. so we kind of called said on the day the war is supposed to start going to have a picket in Limerick City Centre and if it can be there be there and about 30-40 people turned up including a group of students from the art college and I remember again that the Sinn Féin organiser came along and he says to me he says where are you getting these people from? So we, we've never seen these people. And I said, this is just, I've never seen them before either. So if I could do that, 
in Limerick. And I do remember people coming down from Dublin at various stages. And there was a new full-timer, um, an English lad, very enthusiastic guy, um, used to wear one of them West Ham scarves like Alf Garnet. Um, he, he came down and he was really, he was like, you know, doesn't matter, you know, what kind of people you attract, just get a branch off the ground here. And this is happening everywhere. And I can tell you about all these meetings. So the SWM recruited significantly during the no to war campaign which they ran and which was my first experience then of a campaign which had a couple of non-party members as front people but we were in bloody charge you know and the whole thing was you built to your right you'd have alliances with Labour or Sinn Féin or whoever if you could Mm. or their members but you didn't want all these other smaller groups around because that only messed things up for you and they'd be critical and that you didn't there was a big suspicion of people like I mentioned the guy from Cork who had an anarchist background People are always suspicious of him because he knew a bit about politics already and he was a critic. Another guy joined later on in Dublin who was a real self-taught working class lad. Um, mm. And he knew lots about Trotsky and stuff. And immediately people were saying, oh, he's he's a member of some other group. You know, it was this, this really? a much rather people who didn't really either had kind of inverted commas reformist politics yeah. or who who had no kind of politics. And I would have had no kind of politics except the kind of the general mm. buzz. So that's much more, I think, you know, but we were getting lots of people and not just students. I mean, again, a really impressive trade unionist Dublin bus joined and, and, and other people in that time. So mm. now you'll interview other people who are involved in that campaign who can talk about all the shenanigans and all the rest mm. of it. Um, I'll hold my hands up and say, absolutely, we ran it and you, you run these things and you're not going to let anybody else control them. Yeah. I mean, it, during that campaign, actually in Limerick, I had a bit of a, an introduction to that when the local paper in Limerick, there were, there were two Gulf War campaigns. There was a broader one, the Gulf Peace campaign, which the, mm. the Workers' Party and others were in. And one of the local papers in Limerick had a big headline, War Between Peace Groups. And it said <laughs> that the note to war in the Gulf campaign was supporting Saddam Hussein. And I went into the paper and I said, like, where did you get this from? He says, well, I heard it from this peace group. <laughs> and it was a guy from the Workers' Party. And I went up to him and I said, why did you tell them that? And he kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, well, what do you think we're going to do? We're not going to let you not going to let you get this off the ground you know so you realize that this is it it's you know all's fair in love and war and left-wing politics politics. yeah Yeah. unfortunately um it's all relative we weren't shooting each other or anything you know um but uh there was a lot of times you felt like you Mm. know people would like to do that but so i think the note to war in the gulf campaign war for glass strike to a lesser extent whole new world by 91 I became a full-timer. That lad went back to England. Um, yeah, why did you become a full-timer? Well, I mean, I wasn't in a flourishing I'd, uh, employment situation. I tried a, a number of occupations um, and I hadn't been very good at most of them and I was unemployed. <laughs> and again, you know, I was Again-ish. like, I, I get, get out of Limerick and go back to Dublin and mm. things seem to be happening. And then I was a full-timer for, I think, over a year and I spent a lot of time on bus air and going around the country reading speed reading pamphlets and doing talks and again now that I look back on it amazing generosity of people um, you know going to Port Leash or going to Kilkenny or going to Waterford and intruding on a people like there were party members I think this is something that hasn't been really studied I suppose some of the older members would have like been married and all that and had kids yeah. and their partners wouldn't be like really enthusiastic about this so it's a different you know so I'd be like staying in someone's house and the kids would be getting up for school and all the rest and I could tell there was a bit of tension and it's a lot to ask people to do you know Mm. there were there were couples in the SWM and that was fine because they both bloody agreed with politics so they could do Mm. what they like but 
And young single people are the best ever because they do loads of activity and they've got none of this baggage. But, you know, um, actual working class people, and they usually were working class people as well, who've got lots of other stuff going on, who are still trying to set up a branch of of this very small far left party. And uh, you go down and you end up going for a few points with them. And you hear about the local scene, you realise there's a very distinct culture, political culture in every town in Ireland that's quite different, that often goes back in history. And I suppose, again, you do realise that what parties say in public, um, it's different in private and it's different among party members, the the assumptions they make about parties and so on. But there was a big campaign in Belfast around the Brook Centre and people up there worked very hard, I have to say. The DUP and the SDLP were against it. I think the Shinners hedged their bets because, again, it was something that was controversial in the Catholic community as well. There was a demo in a march. We put on a bus to that. Um, there was the 20th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. We did a speaking tour with relatives. I spoke with the the, the wife of a man who'd been killed on, on Bloody Sunday in various places. And we brought a bus up from Dublin to that with different people on it. And then the X case happened. And that, again, transformed things, I think, in terms of... I think without the Gulf War, we if the X case had happened at a different time, we'd have been around, but... It, wouldn't have made much difference. Now, mm. the people who did the heavy lifting, I have to say, Worker Solidarity and other people, the late Alan Maximone and so on, had been relentlessly campaigning around the abortion information issue. Mm. But once again, there's two things I suppose I would say. When an issue becomes, when it hits critical mass and people get into it, it doesn't matter who was who was for it all along. I'm afraid, sorry, you lose out on the race. Doesn't matter. It's yeah. who gets there first. And um, now we just just got on the streets and started doing stuff and lo- so did loads of other people. But there was a spontaneity. There was people coming out. It was, it broke the floodgates in some ways in terms of that. You know, I look back, there's different pictures from the time and you can see us and you can see other people I recognize. Mm. And it, it really was, you know, um, I remember a meeting in Cahill Brewer Street College, the Catering College, that bizarrely, Sinead O'Connor spoke at right, but mm. she didn't say very much. But Emma McCann had got her to come to it. Of course, it was packed because people were it was fucking Sinead O'Connor, so like you know, people were coming to see her. There was loads of people there in their chef's gear and all that, you know. And very, you know, this was 1992. Very few people came up and said we're against abortion. A lot of people were sympathetic, you know. Even and you know, you could see things were beginning to shift, and yeah. the whole argument about abortion information and so on was changing. So mm. the X case was. Again, people joined after that and they joined because they saw us and we were visible and I started to get more and more into it. We've got to be out doing stuff. And people were saying, you were all up with the doll, you know, fighting with the cops. We weren't really fighting with them, but we were trying to break through the barriers. Um, and while you were doing that, the militant were at the back selling papers or somebody else was selling papers, you know, who did you recruit today? And I was like, well, that's not the be all and end all. No, it is the fucking be all and end all. So very crudely, there was... The people who who realise, look, this is a chance for, the again, another step for the party. Um, for some of us, other things were starting to become. Now, I have to say, I was mixing with a lot of people who would have been quite critical of the SWM. Um, there was a really good, another social part was that the CP post, um, CP had been involved in the No to War campaign. So again, that would have been unusual. We'd have been working with them and so on for the first mm-hmm. time. Mick O'Reardon spoke at one of the rallies. They had their Connolly books had a nightclub on a Saturday night. And it was fuck all to do in Dublin. So when I first went to Dublin in, in terms of nightlife, mm. we used to go to sides a lot in the late 80s. Mm. Now, mm. 
it's like regarded as iconic now. Yeah. For us, it was just a place that served. Like I remember yeah. the, the smell of poppers being so intense there, but we used to go there. Then in 91, 92, Saturday nights, the CP had a place that a Dr. Night Dub was the DJ. And it was right, great. Yeah. Like I liked the music and you'd have all sorts of people there, Republicans yeah. and, and people from loads of different organizations. Um, you know, I'd have known people from Red Action. Um, I'd have known mm. people from, again, there was Worker Solidarity and so on. Other people were there. Music was good. Lots of talk. Mm. Um, so I was still a party member and we did mm. seem to be making strides. But I suppose a lot of what I was hearing from Britain too was um, I'd been over in 91, late 91 at a march in the East End of London. Again, I was at a Troops Out thing in 93 uh, in London as well. Mm. And you kind of said, right, the, the SWP have a, have a party line, a story. Um, they relaunched the Anti-Nazi League in 92. That was cosplay from it was nothing like the anti-nets league of the late 70s mm. um but so i had a lot of things which i was thinking about but at the same time we'd come out of the war campaign and the x case with a lot of good new members we were mm. beginning to have a bit of an impact um and i could see that this was really a sea change from from pre-89 mm. 90 um the other thing about the X case was that youth defence then emerged on the streets and that changed yeah. the dynamic again very much. And they were the, this was the backlash, which people in the SWP leadership or SDM, SWM leadership didn't recognise at first. They thought this was like Spook, that it would be like the, the, the grannies with their rosary beads. And it wasn't that. I think we fell into a kind of policy of having counter-protests to youth defence marches. Mm. So maybe 100, 150 people would protest at a march of, of three or 4,000 people. And these were very heated and it started to get a bit more serious. Uh, and I suppose Dublin's small, Dublin city centre is even smaller. So it got a bit personal. And a few of us were involved in different things around that time, which it was obvious it was going to happen, you know. And I think it was good that we, we you know, other people supported the protest too, including Red Action and, and Worker Solidarity and others, and, and Independence. But I think America was put down, you know, that, that that you could have these big marches, but it wasn't a religious procession we were picketing. This was a youth mm. defence march who've, mm. who since have gone in different directions, which I think was was part of their trajectory yeah. as well. But that, again, was, it, we were getting publicity. The name of Socialist Worker was in the papers. Mm. And basically in 90, late 92 um, in Britain, there was the last hurrah of the miners when the Tories tried to close the last pits. Yeah. And there was huge marches, you know, huge marches, absolutely phenomenal backlash mm. against the Tories. And the SWP in Britain basically decided this was it. I don't know whether they would have been just waiting, hoping that, uh, you know, the upturn would come. They just decided this was it. And, and it was like over the next couple of years, we swapped personalities with Millicent. Right. So Millicent got into the long, hard slog of building in, Mulhudert and, and mm. all the rest of it. And basically, you know, it's 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 very much unglamorous. And mm. we kind of suddenly started coming out with stuff about it's time to organise. Um, right. Eventually, I think it was, there's never been a better time to be a socialist. Well, I can think of several times. There's probably <laughs> been better times. Um, up to, you know, I think in 97, the British SWT taught Blair's government was like the, the popular front in France in 1936, that it was going to unleash this wave of worker struggles. Now, that started to become, a, it, it slowly started in Ireland as well. Mm. And it, it didn't seem to bear 
reality. Mm. You know, we were doing better than we were and mm. things had happened. But certainly industrially, the, the working class were not um, fighting back. The level of strikes yeah. and so on was still very low. And, um, you know, they, it seemed to me that basically, and I think any group can do this, when once it reach, reaches a certain critical mass, mm. you can keep on the treadmill forever. You keep going. You lose people, you gain people. You lose people, you gain people. But ultimately, it's you keep people working hard so they don't think about why. Mm. Why did all those people leave? You know, why did all the people recruit? You know, you come up with a reason why they did, but it obviously is never your fault. You know, so I think that maybe was something that that has to be taken into account too. So, so obviously, in a sense, you're becoming more detached from the the party by then or the movement by then yeah mentally but but i was obviously still around because i was at the 1994 conference yeah uh, and by that stage i'd gone to to college um so i did the the wrong way around mm. i was you know I, I went to college and then left uh the stvm but but i could i it's you see the privilege of being in university was that I had access to tons and tons of literature and stuff that yeah. I realized they used to be have the answer for everything, but it's a partial answer. And I started reading about Weimar Germany and all these things. Um, there's a great book, Eve Rosenhaft called beating the fascists. And it's about the German communists and political violence. And I, I was like, this is very interesting in terms of the way I've thought about Weimar and so on. It's much more complicated. Now mm. the problem with things being more complicated is when you're fighting a war or even when you're building a, a political party, things can't be that complicated. You need people to believe in polemics. Um, When you're actually studying history, of course, things are complicated. Of course, there's complexities and and nuances. Um, I mean, I I got more and more disillusioned for a variety of reasons, and I slowly drifted. There was no big, there was no big hurrah. They didn't try very hard to hang on to me because I'd become a bit of a pain, I think, in Trinity. I certainly wasn't. I mean, I, I think about, 93 a term had come in the 80s people and it was basically mm. the people who'd who, who'd been doing this the 80s stuff and, and couldn't you know couldn't get into the the 90s, the 90s yeah yeah um and uh yeah i suppose i was one of the 80s people um and, and was there policy decisions or stuff like that that i mean there seemed to be a bit of a shift towards say the orientation to the republican movements yeah there was and i, I suppose I, I should say two things i mean it's there was by the by the late eighties, and I think the they were probably right to realise this. Um, they'd presume that firstly they presumed that the Labour Party was dead and gone. Basically, coalition had killed it, mm. so the Workers Party would probably become the main reformist party in the south. Yeah. Sinn Fein would continue to grow, and Sinn Fein's leftward move would mean that there would be a big audience there. Yeah. Now that clearly Sinn Fein's electoral progress wasn't happening and it was struggling mm-hmm. and the party was moving towards the idea of the peace process and, and pan-nationalism and so on. Mm-hmm. So we're big critics of that, big critics of the idea of looking towards Fianna Fáil and so on. And mm-hmm. I, I won't do it justice here. People can probably yeah. go back and look at, at what was being written and said. Um, but along with that went, you could believe almost anything about the armed struggle for a while. I mean, we had this kind of unconditional but critical support um, idea which basically meant we Britain was to blame British imperialists was to blame the IRA weren't terrorists mm. uh, the real terrorists were the state but at the same time the IRA could never win guerrilla warfare wouldn't work uh, they were too small too isolated did we t- call on them to stop oh no you couldn't do that um, now when I was 
working on the lost revolution, I could see that the officials had decided in 1974 that the armed struggle didn't work and then you just stop, you know what I mean? Mm. We were still fumbling with this idea. But again, it, it had been different in the 70s, a different view. So this was an 80s kind of thing. Mm. So that became an argument and, and it became an argument about whether or not you could say the armed struggle was counterproductive. Now, by the time the SWM got around to fucking deciding their policy, the IRA called off their armed struggle, you know, so, yeah. you know. We never got to tell them. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I'm sorry, I'm being very facetious. But there is a serious argument about yeah. armed struggle and about popular support and stuff. Yeah. But there were people who would be very pro-IRA and basically say the IRA are grand, just not socialist enough. And then people who would have been, they're terrible. What they're doing is completely counterproductive. Yeah. You could hold both those views underneath the whole range of other stuff. But we weren't like militant. You know, we weren't going to really criticise Republicans. We take yeah. part in Republican events and we'd yeah. oppose extradition and stuff. Labour were dead and gone, basically, and then they weren't. Then mm. in 89, you had the spring tide. So, yeah, 91, 92, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, or sorry, 89, they, they, the Workers' Party had got TDs, yeah. but Labour had, had got 15 or 16. And then mm. 91, 92, you've got the, the, the spring tide, 92, whatever. Um, so we began to, the big sign of that was the Robinson election which wasn't really the sign of it in some ways, but it's the way it's written now, you know. Mm. Um, we paid very little attention. It was in the middle of the Gulf War campaign. So I think we'd said somewhere, vote for Mary Robinson, because you're not going to vote for Brian Lenahan or Austin Curry. Yeah. But it was low key. You know, yeah. we hadn't seen this as a major thing. The mm. British SWP did see it as a major thing. As far as they could see, a woman who was associated with a whole range of women's issues and so on, had been supported by the Irish Labour Party and the Workers' Party and had beaten Fianna Fáil, you know. Mm. But we didn't see it like that because most people bloody hated Mary Robinson and, you know, yeah. thought, oh, my God, she's a useless middle-class liberal or she's a unionist or some bloody thing. Mm. We were just low-key about it, right? And, and so was I. I didn't pay much attention to it. But um, we were doing lots of other stuff about the war and so on. Um, and that was one time the British SWP said why aren't you saying more about this? So retrospectively, we became very much into the Robinson election and the way we went on, you'd swear we'd have been out canvassing for her. We weren't. They had no attention to it, you know. Um, but it did signify bloody something. You know, it did. Um, mm. But I think it was a complex election because I think the stats show that Brian Lenahan got as many votes from the under 25s as she did, you know. Yeah. So it wasn't just the young people moving to the left, but it did, of course, signify changes in our society. And that became a sign then that we had to move away from orientating towards um, republicanism, towards the, the inverted the commas, reformist left, you know. Yeah. Um, and in the North, we had to break out of the, the nationalist ghetto and, and get into the city centres and stuff like that. Mm. And the, the line on the Protestant working class started to slightly shift as well, more towards what Milton had said. Now, I'm not going to be blase or facetious about these things. They're very bloody serious things. Real people are involved in them. We did recruit a couple of people from Protestant working class backgrounds, and it was no joke for them to be yeah. in something like the SWM if their neighbours, you know, found out about it. So, you know... It, it was a serious argument, but at the same time, you could see that it was there was a push on. Now, what the SWM would have done, there were very few people thrown out in my day. I can't really mm. remember too many. You'd be frozen out. Mm. If, if you were regarded as a problem or a critic or a dissident, branch meetings would be organised about a particular topic that was your critical topic, and it would be hammered home, hammered home, hammered home that you were wrong, and eventually you'd be frozen out and you'd probably leave. Um mm. And that didn't have to happen that much because we're pretty small, you know. And again, as I say, there's a camaraderie. People are, mm. you know, inclined to agree with the leadership 
I suppose this push was on then, this idea of time to organise, open door, you know, which I thought was overplayed, overdone, and I mentally had, had zoned out. There were a lot of other issues, and, and that's maybe another day's work. Yeah. What I would say in general, the relationship with the SWP was quite complex. Uh, we didn't believe we were the centre of a great international tendency or leadership. It was supposed to be like-minded groups in different parts of the world, mm. all of whom were different from each other, really. Um, like, for example, in Greece, they'd emerged under the dictatorship and they joined up with the SWP kind of mm. tendency. But, you know, they, they were quite a distinct history. And then mm. the Irish SWM had a distinct history in many ways, too, which, you know, people should probably dig into more. But mm. we were right next to Britain and the SWP was bloody big and it could look impressive. So um, we were obviously influenced by it. But... It was light touch. Um, the SWP wouldn't have been on the phone every week, you know, yeah. to Kieran Allen telling him this is what you need to do. It didn't happen like that. So in 1984, Reagan came and there was a kind of an anti-Reagan campaign, which was the church and the third world people and I think Labour, Workers' Party type people. And they had a formulation that you couldn't join that campaign unless you forswore violence. It was obviously to keep Sinn Féin out. So the SWM decided to set up the Reagan reception campaign and they said, you can, you know, didn't say you should, if you want violence, you should join us. But uh, basically, we're not going to keep people out. Yeah, yeah. And the SWP in Britain said, that's mad. Don't do that. You're too small. You won't be able to run a campaign of that size, you know. And the SWM in Ireland said, no, we're going to do it because no one else will do it. And actually, I, like there were people in the SWM who they, they recruited quite a few people and lost a lot of them after mm. that campaign. But nevertheless, they, they'd done it. Mm. So... I think the important point is that when the SWM wanted to disagree with the SWP in Britain, they could. The Robinson thing, the British SWP would have said, oh, this, you're completely wrong on this and would have argued with them. But the, I think Kieran Allen and co did already agree. So it wasn't the case that our arms would be, were being twisted. Obviously, the British SWP did dominate the international groupings, really. And I think over the last 20 years, I haven't kept up with it, but it's completely fractured as groups have decided to be non-dominated but it was it was light touch would you ever have thought like that the swp now the swn and part of pbp and a very constituent part would ever have been that you know would ever got to this point that it is in irish politics left politics where we are now with no i mean i'd have you know probably when i was 18 i'd have dreamed of of them you know but i would have thought it would be leading strikes or something i would never have thought that it did have tds you know, I mean, because we never, I mean, electoralism was reformism and so on. It was for somebody else. We call for votes for people, but we we're never going to do it ourselves. And yeah. and I think it, it helps keep them honest to some extent. I mean, uh, I think if you're standing for election for a council seat or a doll seat, you have to go into communities. We'd have written off community politics completely. I mean, people would have been contemptuous of Tony Gregory and so on. And so like, what's the point in that? Mm. Community always drags you backwards. I think mm. they've had to realise you can't, you know, you know, you've got to be rooted in a particular place. And I think that that shift has actually, in some ways, I mean, I, I know people are critical critics of electoralism, but I actually think it's it's a good thing for mm. keeping you in touch with reality, you know, in yeah. some ways. The British SWP, and again, because the British political system, they could never have, you know, done this. Yeah. Um, they were not in touch with reality quite clearly by the late 90s. The, um, they, the, the SWM here or whatever it is now. Um, and again, people before profit, we probably have sneered at that because we never used the term people. 
that was too broad. It always would have been workers. You know, right. people would have been a term that the, the Orthodox communists would, would have used. We'd have yeah. said workers, whatever. But um, no, I mean, I, I know there's all kinds of critiques of, of them, but I think in general, yeah, obviously, they've had successes and they've become a, a factor in politics in, in, yeah. in a way. Yeah. Just one thought about um, you were writing, obviously, for the party publication, all the rest of it. Where was it published as a matter of interest? Who published well, it was it was published in Dublin, but it was printed by the SWP at cost price. So in they the had UK, a print shop in the UK. They had a yeah. print shop in the East End of London, um, which printed all sorts of stuff and actually printed. I think they printed papers for a load of the small groups who hated them as well. Um, yes. But it was business. Um, but uh, they printed the Irish Socialist Worker, yeah, at, at at cost price for us, which was just as well because you know you didn't sell tons yeah. of them but you could i mean as i say you, you might sell 200 in a morning in waterford and um, they might sell five at the gpo a monthly paper again so mm. for a long time not a lot of news in it you know it had mm. to be very broad type articles you know mm. um and i wouldn't i'd hate to go back and look at my own collection of There's some of in stuff the archive well, some of the stuff archive. i contributed god knows um <laughs> but yeah there was i mean you were encouraged to write for it and you yeah. were encouraged to um to speak and things like that. There was no training. I mean, you just went in at the deep end. So, you know, they might say, give a five minute report on that pamphlet or give yeah. a five minute report on whatever. And then you just kind of, if you could do it, you could do it. And and um, similarly with writing, you just tried mm-hmm. to, to do that yourself. And I didn't have any formal, I didn't go to, to college until yeah. 93, I think. One big fault, as I said to you, was the lack of appreciation of Irish history um in the sw maybe it's different now but you know even when i started looking at stuff with the lockout and all that during the centenary you know it struck me why didn't i realize like there was tons of skilled workers in dublin who wanted nothing to do with the transport union but there's divisions within the working class and regional divisions and divisions of gender and so on that we just forget about it a lot of the time because we're obsessed with this party to this or this party to that but actually you know the working class itself is a pretty complex and contradictory yeah. you know phenomenon and even though we'd have constantly we hated Hobbes bomb and all those people mm. you know marxism today you're a communist we do our attitude to them would have been close to what the orthodox communists thought about them because they were talking about the end of class and the end mm. of the industrial proletariat and it's kind of like kinochism and blairism and so on coming from that so we absolutely were against that we said no the working class is still the major force for change it's mm. just changed a bit well, it has changed, you know, and this is another question, you know, and what does it mean in terms of community and what does it mean in terms of, of how it, yeah. uh, the big, another big missing one. We had not, nothing, nothing to say about crime, nothing to say about heroin. Yeah. You know, I look back at the central impact heroin has had in Dublin in the last 40 years. I mean, I reviewed a Cambridge history of Ireland or some bloody thing, and I pointed out that heroin isn't mentioned in it once, you know, um, that, that you can talk about Ireland you can't talk about working class communities in their historical sense. This is the this is the class of the lockout, you know, inner city Dublin. And it's been decimated by heroin and by crime. And we had nothing really to say about that. Mm. And, and in fact, liberalism passed for analysis there, mm. you know, in terms of what was said about it. And that was that was really wrong. And I realized it, it was wrong. And, and instinctively, there were a few of us who would have thought it was wrong as well, you know. But, mm. you know, you just kind of... Um, it, it wasn't regarded as that important. And that maybe says something about not being grounded in particular places too. I've only just thought of that. Even the fact that I'm only thinking of it now 
you know. Um, I guess it says about the intrinsic bias inside the society against certain things. Yeah, I mean, I always thought that the term lumpton and all that was thrown around, that's a word the left use for members of the working class they don't like, you know. Mm. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a more complex world than that. One last question, which kind of goes on from this. Do you think having been an activist plays a role in your historical research and how you approach history and how you, I mean, that's a massive question, but just, you know, has the, did it sharpen you up in a sense? It does, because I think it means, firstly, you, you uh, some, you know, a historian might look at, a, at a, a paper and say some group had 10 members and just go the insignificant, whatever. Whereas if you've been active in politics, you know that if you've got 10 members active in a particular place at a particular time, they can have quite an impact. Also, then the, the kind of critique of parties is, you know, the, well, did people really believe in all that stuff? Were they just interested in the football? When you've been involved in something, you realise that actually people can be really dedicated political activists and have all these other interests. Yeah. Be whatever it's, you know, whatever it, 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 it can be, that actually people, even most political activists, are pretty complex yeah. people. So I think it does give you something of an insight into campaigns and and struggles in history that if you're coming from at the outside, you might, you know, just assume this isn't important, whereas, you know, you'll be able to have maybe take a bit more nuanced view of it. That's, that's fantastic. Listen, thanks a million, Brian. Thanks Listen, a lot. Listen. Thanks, thanks a million, mate. Talk to you. Good luck. Bye.